if someone tells you to stay in your lane, you should definitely get out of your lane. It was about of knowing your place and bucking that. And that is so central to my books. Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustville, and today I am delighted to be joined by Edie Kay, author of A Lady's Revenge, The Boxer and the Blacksmith, A Lady's Finder, and her newest novel, A Viscount's Vengeance. At the end of this book, you are going to get a happily ever after, and it's going to be on the heroine's own terms. You know what? I am tired of having five years of waiting to publish a novel. I don't want to wait anymore. Edie Kay writes hard-hitting feminist pugilist Regency romances. Her debut, A Lady's Revenge, won the Golden Leaf Best First Book in 2020. The next in her series, The Boxer and the Blacksmith, won the Hearts Through History Legends Award as an unpublished manuscript in 2019. She has dual BAs in creative writing and music and an MFA in creative writing from the University of Alaska Anchorage. She is a member of the Regency Fiction Writers the Historical Novel Society, and a founding member of Paper Lantern Writers. Today, I'll be talking to her about her genre, her path to publishing, and her love of adventure. For listeners who aren't familiar, what are the characteristics of a Regency romance? So a Regency romance is about the 10-year period in the early 1800s, from about 1810 to about 1820, when King George III had gone mad and his son, the Prince Regent, takes over control uh, until his father's death in 1820. The hallmarks of this genre are pretty dresses, (laughs) uh, the aristocracy. uh, You can think of Jane Austen. Uh, Usually there is um, sort of a Mr. Darcy feel. So you often have a brooding hero um, and a girl who is often uh, different for some other, for some reason. So those are, I try to always include a ball because that is also one of the hallmarks. So there's always a fancy party to go to. Uh, And in some ways that's a lot like a Cinderella tale. And what is it that drew you to that um, genre? Was it something you enjoyed to read or was it something you just found more fun to write? I've always enjoyed historical fiction and I've written a lot of historical fiction and I was going on the literary track and finding that the things I was interested in with historical fiction were not really gaining gaining traction with um, agents and editors. I would always get wonderful feedback and they would say, this is very well written. I just don't think I can sell it. And so because they said, I don't think I can sell it so many times to me, I finally was like, okay, well then what does sell? 
So that's when I started reading a lot of romance because romance is the best-selling genre out of any type of publishing. It's not close. And I was reading a lot of historical fiction, a lot of historical romance. And particularly, uh, I have a friendly connection with Sarah McLean. So I was reading a lot of her books and I really liked her books. And in particular, I enjoyed the idea, and this is going to sound a little funny, I really enjoyed the idea that her love scenes were so integral to her stories that if you cut those, the sexy, smutty scenes that people always talk about with romance novels, if you took those out, you would miss so much character development. And I just thought that was such a powerful way and such a way to turn this on the head of how people viewed you know, the quote unquote bodice rippers. It's a different way and gave it so much more power and I started reading more. I found Courtney Milan, who I got to say her book, the second book in her Sinister Brothers series, uh, The Heiress Effect, was the reason why I was like, okay, I am going to write a Regency romance. Uh, hers are not quite Regency. They're a little after Regency as are Sarah's, but they were the reasons that I thought, okay, I, I could do this. My quirky voice could work here because for a while I just didn't think I could write a Regency because I didn't have the voice for it. Um, all of my writing came out just a little odder <laughs> than a lot of the bestsellers. So um, when I read The Heiress Effect by um, uh, Courtney Milan, that was when I heard that book, the, the main idea behind it is if someone tells you to stay in your lane, you should definitely get out of your lane. It was about of knowing your place and bucking that. And that is so central to my books. Well, you brought up a lot of interesting points there. Um, you know, one being that there's there's more integrity involved in the character development in some of those scenes, um, but also that, that you made a compromise. And I don't know where you're at with that compromise at this point, but can you talk a little bit about that decision to or the choice writers have to make between writing what they want and and writing for their readers sure so writing what you want i feel like can be can happen in any genre i feel like i could write a science fiction novel although i would probably write science fiction poorly i love science fiction um i'm just very judgmental about my own work <laughs> Uh, but I feel like you can write any genre and still be true to your own voice. You just need to pick the subgenre within that genre that fits you. So for me, uh, if you look at my books, they're about often about the lower class. They're not about the aristocracy, although they sometimes brush up against it. My books are a lot about personal power and about, uh, as one of my readers called it, relatable misfits. So I did take that tagline because I thought it was such a good description of what I write. These relatable misfits who are trying to find their way. I use a lot of found family uh, in my books as well. Uh, also not very popular, especially when you think of Regency novels right now that's popular. Bridgerton's. Bridgerton, of course, has uh, by Julia Quinn. That series covers uh, eight siblings there's this massive family. And in my books, I have people who are orphaned and um, alone and having to make their own 
way and make their own families. So even though that's not a popular trope in the Regency genre, I found that and I found aspects of history that are accurate, that are historically accurate, that drew me into a world that I could write about. I think that's fascinating that that you know you you compromised a little by going to Regency romance, but it sounds like you really kind of made it your own. Yeah, um, I I wouldn't actually use the word compromise for it. I think it was more of um, I didn't really know much about the genre. You know, it just wasn't part of uh, my literary training. I went through an MFA program. It was definitely frowned upon. You know, romance novels are frowned upon. Period. I can recall a couple of instances in class when I would write basically a romance story and then get made fun of <laughs> in in a workshop because of it, um, which always struck me as odd because it was like, well, this is the story that's in every book. Like, why is it weird to write a romance when you can find a romance in every single book out there? Like, even the Bourne trilogies have romance. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so that's where where I went with it. So I wouldn't really call it a compromise. I would say that it was more of market research that pointed me in a direction that I could um, thrive in. Sure. And while you go a little bit further, of course, because you have it defined on your website as feminist pugilist Regency romance. Uh, so <laughs> why why feminism? Why pugilist? So pugilism means boxing. Uh, so my books are about women's boxing. Uh, that was actually the historical aspect that really intrigued me. And one that I have found that I, I've run out of rope on. I've, I've done as much research as I can. And I've spoken directly to the academics who have done the research. And I, there needs to be more primary research to be done, which I am actually hoping to do at some point. I would really love to write a nonfiction biography of the best boxer of the 18th century, which was Elizabeth Wilkinson Stokes. She had her first boxing match in 1722. She was undefeated in her career. She had her own amphitheater. She was the real deal. Um, and unfortunately, when her husband, James Stokes, dies in 1734, we lose track of her. Um, so I would love to go find the tax records. I would love to go find their marriage license because Wilkinson was not her, was likely not her given name. It was likely a stage name that she took on for boxing. Uh, she has year long gaps between fights sometimes. And I'm wondering, did she have children? You know, there's a lot of questions that I have and I would love to really dive, dive into that. Um, so that's, that's the pugilism part. So in my books, my first book is more of a sort of a Rocky kind of feel where you have an amateur boxer. Uh, she is an Earl's daughter. So she takes boxing lessons in secret. This is one of the things that people were not sure initially if it was historically accurate. But if you look at other things that are happening in that time, you can find documentation of young ladies of her station taking fencing lessons uh, and other shooting lessons, other things that were considered to be male dominated, but they did it in private. There were also known professional female boxers. And that is my second book, The Boxer and the Blacksmith, where you have a professional female boxer and it's about her journey. She is heavily based on Elizabeth Wilkinson Stokes, not entirely, uh, but heavily. And including the, the penultimate fight is uh, 
drawn directly from uh, a specific fight from Elizabeth Wilkins and Stokes's career. The third book is actually a, the sister. It's got the least amount of boxing. And then the fourth book, which is just coming out now, March 1st, it's uh, called The Viscount's Vengeance. And it does have a lot more boxing in it uh, this time. Uh, and it shows the the female protagonist has a love of historical aspects of boxing. And so she really does a lot of callbacks to the research I've done for Elizabeth Wilkinson Stokes, including like how she dressed, weaponry, that kind of stuff. So that's the pugilism part. Um, for the feminist part, there is a kind of a, a split in modern romance readers who some of them take, uh, to use fancy words here, some of them take umbrage to the idea that there's a feminist telling of of this time period that women had more personal power than they believe they did. And my argument is, so I use feminist as a tag because I want readers to know ahead of time what they're getting into, because if they're expecting uh, some lady who's going to faint at the sight of her own ankles, which is something that <laughs> my heroine says, you're not going to get it here. These are women who have experienced things these are women who have seen a lot of things. Um, a lot of times we have this gilded cage aspect of the aristocracy and of, of the women of the aristocracy. And because my books mix with the lower class, you get a mix of, of experience and a mix of perspectives. And I think that I think that modern readers often look back at that time and really dismiss the level of experience that these women would have had. They would have been in with their mothers during childbirth. They would have seen a lot of blood. They would have experienced um, sickness because you would have had, there were multiple different plagues that would, you know, go through the cities, whether or not, it, I mean, at that time you wouldn't have the black plague, but you would have seen other illnesses sweep through as a mistress of a large house, you would have been obligated to help uh, heal your servants, your family. That was part of your job, you know, just whatever homeopathic stuff you could find. So I, I call it feminist because I want to make sure that that my readers understand that at the end of this book, you are going to get a happily ever after, and it's going to be on the heroine's own terms. That's a really good way to put it, and. You know, I, I have seen some of those, some of those reviews that are critical because of the, you know, feminist pers perspective per, per se. But you make a lot of really great points that that's that that's not really that's just how we perceive it, not how it actually was. And I also am just fascinated that that you bring to light this era of uh, female boxing. That, you know, that's the the greatness of historical fiction. I had no idea. I would I would have just gone <laughs> gone on assuming that that women did not box until the 20th century. I did I did either read or, or see that you did do some boxing. Um, what was that experience like for you? And what what were you able to take away from it that was that you were able to add to your your characters and to your writing? Uh, so I boxed at Savannah Combat Club under Coach Bass, uh, who was great and very understanding. I was the oldest person in the club, including him. <laughs> so, you know, I'm walking into this squat 
brick building with bars on the windows and not in a great part of town. And uh, I was just this middle-aged white lady who looked like everyone's mom showing up being like, hey, I'd like to learn how to box, please. Uh, and they were very welcoming. Um, I have a history of being a runner and being athletic. And so uh, I was very pleased with the fact that when we would have to do things like wall sits and, you know, you know, fixed number of crunches or push-ups or whatever that I could hold my own. I was never in the lead, but, you know, I was in the middle of the pack. I was never the first one done. Like, you know, I could, I could hold my own and uh, that surprised everyone. And I was, I was pleased. It, it, it let me hold my place. Um, and it was nice to feel what training felt like in my muscles, you know, to use a speed bag, um, to use a heavy bag. So a heavy bag was actually used in the Regency era. It was filled with sawdust and hung from the ceiling. So not unlike what we use today, probably had a lot more give <laughs> than what we use today. Um, and it was interesting also to understand the mindset that you get into. I'm also a musician. And so one of the things that always irritates me in books with music is that it has like this magical quality, like a person just sits down and magically music just falls out of their body somehow. And it, it irritates me because I've, I've been a pianist since I was four. I have a bachelor's degree in music and I worked really, really, really hard. I practiced untold hours, my scales, uh, sight reading, you know, everything. And to dismiss that work is, is irritating and call it magic. And so I felt the same way about entering this world of how am I going to write about boxing when I don't know what it feels like in my body. And I certainly didn't want to misrepresent female athletes in any way. So I wanted to make sure I honored that. And I went and having that preparatory time of wrapping my hands before I would start using, you know, a heavy bag or a speed bag or sparring with someone else. It is a meditative time. And if you, and in my first book, I use that a lot with the hand wraps because uh, the time period I write in 1817 was a time when hand wraps were just starting to really come about as a regular practice uh, for, for boxers. Um, old school boxers, you know, so people who are probably in their thirties and forties probably would not want to use them because they've never used them before. They never needed them before. They would pickle their hands, like literally stick their hands into brining to like harden the skin. Um, so for them using hand wraps would have been ridiculous, but it did help me understand that when you wrap your hands, it keeps your knuckles from splitting apart. When you, when you hit something with a good impact, it helps just, it also helps mentally keeping your uh, focus. It sounds silly, but um, in the same way that I would use a lot of mental tricks when I was playing piano, it helps you kind of think about your hand in a different way, you know, as one, as one knot, as opposed to your five fingers, you know, it's, it's just a different thought process. And of course the the ultimate, because uh, to paraphrase Mike Tyson, you know, everybody thinks they have a plan until they get punched in the face. I needed to know what it was like to get punched in the face. So I did uh, do some very light sparring. I would not say like Coach Bass always made sure I was very protected. Um, 
and you know, I always wore gear. Um, but yeah, having your bell rung a couple times uh, in in the midst of moving around is a very different experience than I think most people have. Yeah, you're a little like an investigative journalist in in that sense. Yeah, because how can you how can you write about a punch coming from you know in your body when you don't know where it comes from? You know, everyone thinks of not everyone, but a lot of people think a punch will come from your wrist or your elbow when in fact it comes from way back in your shoulder. And how does your body sit and what does it mean to telegraph your punches and and you know how does your body feel in that moment? It's it's very different. So we've talked about now the the experience that your characters go through as as boxers and something that you had to learn. There's also an issue of dialect and language. And I'm just gonna read a quote from one reviewer who says that Kay embraces the the linguistic oddities of the period and highlights specific words and terms to emphasize reality and add an authentic tone to many descriptions. Can you talk about the challenge of first, you know, knowing what that authentic tone is, but also not being too heavy handed with it that it might uh, pull the reader out of the story? Absolutely. Those are it is tricky. Um, and I worked really hard on it. Uh, a lot of people might not realize that much of our modern slang originates from Regency era boxing and, and later boxing. Uh, things like toe the line, up to scratch, those are just a few that we use every day that are from that time period and from the beginning of boxing. So I looked into some of the older slang and the book that I put a lot of that in is The Boxer and the Blacksmith, because my boxer has grown up on the streets. She is the most misfit of all misfits. And when you live in that world, you use different words. One of the arguments I remember having throughout my, my academic career was that word is inappropriate. You know, because of course you're a writer, you're, you're focusing in on a specific word, a specific verb, you know, is your prose active enough? And when you think about who your characters are, those words are very telling. So to have someone who's grown up in the streets, who's grown up rough, you're going to have to remember that they're not going to call, uh, you know, a, Hey child, no, you're going to say those kitchens over there because kitchen was uh, the word that they would use for little kids. And it, it gives an authenticity, um, I think, an authenticity to use those words because it is the offhand way of speaking. So she could speak properly if she was trying very hard, but when she's just walking around in her neighborhood and comfortable and with people that she's comfortable with, their words back and forth are going to have a very different style. And I think that that really shows... Um, it gives those telegraphs to the reader. Hey, look, she's really comfortable here. These are her people. They use the same words. They're part of a group as opposed to the scenes where she's dealing with outsiders from her area and how they use different words and they don't understand specific dialects that she would use. And especially with the class system in England. Um, so I, I didn't put it, put it in very heavy, but my boxer she is of irish descent and uh the irish in london at the time were uh you know wage workers they did a lot of the uh heavy labor and the 
the prejudice against them was still very much there. And so their dialect was very much different. And I wanted to make sure that the words show how, um, how separate they stayed. You talked earlier about uh, your your decision to to move to Regency romance as a genre because of some of the feedback you were getting about what's marketable and, and what's not. And so I'm curious, um, where are you now in the publishing process? What was the learning process like, you know, from beginning to where you are now? And, and now, you know, wh- what is your choice way to publish your books? Do you still go through the submission process or is it something else? When I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer. I knew that from age eight. I wrote journals, I wrote stories. I wrote stories for my classmates and sold them to them for a time apiece. That was the original self-publishing. <laughs> um, I had this idea that I would go on this track. I would go to college, I would get my bachelor's in creative writing. I would go to graduate school and get my MFA in creative writing. I would get a short story collection published from the work I would, was doing in my MFA program. And then I would write novels and boom, that's how I would do this. Uh, Jane Austen published her first book at 23. And I was like, can do, I'm all over it. That of course is not what happened. <laughs> um, when I got out of my MFA program. I probably felt more lost than I had in a long time. And it took me a while to get my bearings on my own writing, to figure out where I was going, what stories I wanted to write. And I'd always had this kernel in my head of this story. And so I was writing it. I wrote so many drafts of it. And this was also a time when publishing itself was changing. It was going from when self-publishing was vanity presses and the big five were consolidating. It was getting harder and harder to publish. Things were changing very quickly. Amazon was coming up with self-publishing routes. So uh, I submitted my novel over and over again. I went to writing conferences. I submitted to agents. I would get full requests. I would get partial requests and then full requests. And it never went anywhere. And so for about five years, I submitted hard on this novel that I would get this wonderful feedback. And it would be, you know, with these agents for well over a year. And, you know, I would send them the whole thing and they would say, ah, I can't sell this. But if you write something else, please let me know. And I had a different career in healthcare. And finally, I got back to writing after a while. And I was like, okay, you know what? I am tired of having five years of waiting to publish a novel. I don't want to wait anymore. So uh, that was when I kind of did some market research and was like, okay, so if I'm going to do this by myself, if I'm going to self-publish, what is a genre that I just won't get lost at the bottom of the Amazon search engine? And so that's really when I came to regencies because those are the best selling of the historical romance genre. So I went through that. I self-published, but I held myself to the same standards that any published, you know, a traditionally published writer would do. So I have a developmental editor that I work with that I, I very much enjoy. Her name's Anya Kagan. She works for, she has her own um, editing company, Touchstone Editing. She does a fabulous job. 
Uh, I hire sensitivity readers to make sure that I'm doing well and, and doing right by the communities that I represent. And then I have a copy editor who is a friend, Signe Jorgensen, a friend from my MFA program, Signe Jorgensen Editing, and she does my copy editing. And oh, and I have a fabulous cover designer, um, Fiona Jade of Fiona Jade Media, who does these incredible covers. And I think I have a good team. I, you know, we email back and forth. We make sure the schedule is set and I have a process and they are wonderful. They are, they, I feel like we have, they don't know each other, but I know all of them. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that that whole story. I think it's a good reminder of the, well, first of all, you know, I talk to a lot of writers and there's there is no easy path to publishing. And sometimes you have to make your own path. And so I think that's really inspiring to hear the path you went down, though it might have been rocky at some times. Um, but that you did find find your own path. And it, it, it's kind of a reminder for other writers out there that you just kind of have to be patient and find find the way that works for you. And maybe a, a good reminder for readers out there, if you can, please support authors because they're, they're putting in a lot of their, their time and their effort and, and expertise to, to make these books. Uh, can you tell me about Paper Lantern Writers? Uh, what is it and how did you get involved? Yes. So Paper Lantern Writers is an author marketing collective. We're a group of, uh, well, we started out as a group of five uh, from Northern California's Historical Novel Society, you know, sub subgroup. And uh, it was uh, an idea so that we could all market our novels more effectively. So we all write historical fiction and that is our sort of blanket uh, our blanket topic that we have. So we have, we have our blog that we do twice a week. Uh, I do live interviews, uh, with authors once a month. We have written interviews that we do with indie published authors, uh, once a month. We have a Facebook group. We are on all social media platforms. We run giveaways and it's a way for, us to not just celebrate our own books and our own historical fiction, but other people's as well. And we don't really put a cap on it. So we, we've expanded every year. This is our third year. We've, and so now we're up to nine members and we, we have books from uh, the bronze age to, I think 1940s is the one that's coming out most recently. Yeah, so Linda's Aloha Spirit is 1940s. So we go every which direction. And it's a way that we can not only help ourselves, but help other historical fiction authors. So we firmly believe in the rising tide lifts all boats. We want to make sure that not only can we support ourselves, but support other authors who are going through the same thing. And open to self-pub, traditionally pubbed, um, indie pub, all of it. It doesn't matter to us. And we try to share fun historical tidbits, interviews with other people, um, all sorts of stuff. We have an anthology that came out in November, November 1st, with uh, stories from all of our time periods, which is really, it's been a really fun adventure for writing those. That was really fun. And we try to also have some free offerings as well, you know, just recipe books, older recipes and family recipes of ours and 
just we try to have fun. Can you talk about you? You already mentioned your um, you play music. Uh, you play the piano. Um, can you talk about your filmmaking as well? And and maybe a little bit. How, how does you, your other creative outlets? How do they add to what you do as a writer? Sure. So I play. So I started playing piano when I was four. My parents are both musicians, and I think that's just what happens when you have music in the home. So um, I don't really feel like I had a choice. <laughs> it was just sort of a thing that happened. Um, but I enjoyed it. I feel like I eventually excelled at it. Um, and then with filmmaking, that sort of just fell in as well. I made some friends when we moved to Savannah and uh, our neighbors who were filmmakers and graduated from SCAD and were making films. And so I would appear in their short, funny films, you know, their little things that they were just making just to make something just, you know, just to have a funny time. And then we were at one of the film festivals and we decided to make how to be sexy. And so it was really, we were calling it a maple leaf sweater. So the premise of it, it's a very short video. I think it's hilarious. And uh, we were just talking about, I, I think we were talking about the star Allison Janney. I think that was maybe why we started talking about this. But what makes a person sexy is not what they're wearing, but it's how they wear it. And so the premise of this little short video is a woman going to a boudoir shot and she's super uncomfortable wearing some black lingerie stuff and posing in all these ways with high heels. And, you know, it's just really awkward and she's having a hard time. And then finally the photographer's like, like, look, this isn't working. What can we do to change this? I need you to be comfortable. And so she walks out wearing a massive, what we call the maple syrup sweater. So she is like in this gigantic sweater and massive PJ pants, like the most not form fitting. She takes her hair down, the music changes. And then all of a sudden, like she's being comfortable and they're having a good time and getting sexy pictures because she is comfortable. Uh, so that was, I don't know, one of the fun things. And then also because I can never turn down a good adventure, we did Big Five Dive. So in 2016, Patty, which is the certifying body for scuba divers, had a International Women's Dive Day. So a group of women uh, decided to do all five Great Lakes in 24 hours. So I went along and dove that as well. And I actually filmed B-roll on my iPhone in an underwater case, which was super cool. And we completed it. We did, we did it. We did five Great Lakes in 24 hours. It was exhausting. I think people who don't live in the Midwest might not have an idea of how far apart the Great Lakes are. Um, so it was 10 minute dives in each place. We started in the UP of Michigan, the Upper Peninsula at midnight and took our first dive at 12.01. And we would like swim out to sites and then dive and then swim back, get in the car, drive. So I was wearing basically a wetsuit for 24 hours. So it was, it was a lot of fun and it's a great film. It's up on Vimeo, you can watch it there. And uh, it's from the great people of Mad Law Media. Um, they are wonderful and amazing filmmakers and they're still working. So, you know, all your filmmaking needs. That's incredible. It does definitely sounds like you do like a good adventure or you like to try new things. You know, I, I read that you 
did bike bicycle tours or motorcycle tours in Alaska. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. My husband and I both do that. Um, and again, MotoQuest, we both worked for MotoQuest for a, a time. I met my husband up in Alaska and we, we both worked at this motorcycle company and yeah, he actually did some tours for them again this year. I did not. Um, but last year we, we rented some of their BMW 1200s, 1250s and took them down. We drove them one way from Anchorage down to Portland and it's just, it's just a blast. I love it. We took the Cassier highway through British Columbia and it's, it's breathtakingly gorgeous. And I got to say, we picked last year at the exact right time when it's just getting cool. So you have that little bit of a nip in the air, but it's not to the point where you got to worry about frost or freezing conditions. And it, you know, it was still part of the COVID pandemic. The villages were all um, barricaded. So we had to really worry about our gas stops and our food stops. One night we did get aced out of uh, a place to sleep. So we, we finally did find a campground after driving like an extra, like 300 miles. We finally found a campground to stay at for the night. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't trade any of that for the world. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's just so fun. Wow. Well, Edie, um, where can readers find out more about you and pick up your books? I am on every available platform. So you can find me on Amazon. You can find me at Barnes and Noble. Um, you can also request from your local bookstore to have them order one of my books. So they're available on Ingram Spark. So it's di wide distribution. And you can find me blogging at paperlanternwriters.com and also at the Paper Lantern Writers YouTube channel. So again, just search on YouTube, find for Paper Lantern Writers and you'll find us. Uh, you can see my my ugly mug up there. And then I do have my own website at scarabskinbooks.com. It I, I gotta say I don't update it as much as I'm on Paper Lantern Writers. That's the easiest spot. But you can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at author EDK. Well, thank you, Edie, and congratulations on your books and on everything you're involved in. And thanks so much for talking with me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. Thank you.